Welcome to Beyond the Bio, a podcast that dives deep into the exceptional leaders of Bain and spotlights the incredible work they're doing. You can look up their bios online, but that only scratches the surface of who they are. On this podcast, we share the stories that show you why our leaders are truly extraordinary. Joining me today is Onyinye Ibineche Owowo, a partner in our Boston office. And on the show today, we'll discuss Onyinye's path from engineer to consultant, why she believes automation is important and what it means for the future of how we work, and her experience transferring offices from South Africa to the U.S. and getting more involved in our diversity and affinity groups. Onyinye, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Keith. Super excited to be here today. So we always start the podcast giving our listeners a sense of who they're listening to. Why don't we start with your background? Where did you grow up? So I always say that I'm a citizen of the world. I am from Nigeria, was born there, and about the age of two, moved to the Netherlands. Uh, My dad worked in Shell. And actually, for the next chapter of my life, we went back and forth between Nigeria and the Netherlands. So I spent time growing up in both places and in different cities in in both countries. So I always say that I don't have a uh, typical kind of background in that, like, I grew up in a city or a hometown I have many places that I'm from. Right. Now, I know you had siblings growing up. Were you always talking about being a consultant or an engineer? Or, you know, how did you decide what you wanted to be when you grew up? That's a great question. How does anybody decide what they want to be when they grow up? (laughs) In in our case, uh, or in my case, should I say, I say that my dad rigged the deck just a little bit. He was an engineer, is an engineer. I guess once you are one, you don't stop being one. And he would purchase these toys that were quite suggestive, circuit boards that we could play with and chemistry sets and things of that nature. And we would play with those on occasion. And so I became quite intrigued by, you know, how things work. And if we're watching a television or if we're listening to radio, like, you know, how did how do the things actually happen? And so that got me really interested in engineering. Now, we've had a bunch of folks on the podcast who didn't grow up in the U.S., and their parents were always, sometimes subtly, usually not very subtle, uh, clear on what were acceptable careers for successful yeah, yeah. for successful kids. Did you, did you have that same sort of upbringing? <laughs> I will say that, oh, I guess it's a joke of the African parent. So I'll say that my parents, more subtle, uh, more subtly than most, suggested that careers like engineering and law and being a doctor were good careers that would set you up uh, well in life. So yeah, th- that was sort of a thread growing up. Very consistent with what we've heard before. So <laughs> the time comes and you go away to college. How did you decide to go to Clarkson? So for those of you that don't know, Clarkson is a tiny college in northern New York. At the time when I went, I think there were about 3,000 students or so. So it was a very small university. Coming from Nigeria and going to a new country that I had not been to before, I think I was about 17 at the time. I was thinking about, one, going to a place where engineering was kind of a core focus. And at Clarkson, it really was an engineering college. And the second thing I was thinking about was not being so close to my sisters. So I have two sisters and we're separated by a year each. And so we've done everything together growing up. And folks kind of, you know, we were like the Ibaneche girls. And so I wanted to have my own identity. And so I was like, I'm not going to where they are. And one was in uh, Boston at the time. The other was in, was in Austin, Texas. So this felt far enough away. And the third thing was I wanted a place where that was small, where people would know me and I could get to know people. And so that was the third thing that drew me to Clarkson. So I know the campus was small and that was attractive to you, but did you think you were going to New York City? 
<laughs> no, although I would be forgiven for thinking that, given where I was coming from. I thought that I was not going to New York City, but I'd be closer to New York City than I was. And Clarkson, I always joke, is in Canada. The closest cities to Clarkson were Montreal and Ottawa. It's about 10 hours away from New York City. So I was a little surprised when I was like, okay, I landed in, because I did land in, in New York City. And then it was like, okay, we're going on this jaunt to, to school. And it just took forever to get there. Yeah, so that was a little surprising. Right. I was talking with someone in the office one time, and they were coming from West Africa to University of Illinois, which is two hours south of where I am right now, where my son is. Yeah, yeah. And O'Hare is an hour north. So it's a good three-hour ride. And yeah. the school's marketing material had sort of marketed it as a Chicago-area school. <laughs> so she came by herself and landed at the airport and got in a cab and said, you know, take me to this place. <laughs> That's three hours away. Three I'm, hours not going away. I'm not going down there. <laughs> so... Fast forward a little bit. You graduate with your engineering degree. How did you decide what to do next? Because you, you know, you got what you wanted, but now it was time to go get a job. Yeah, yeah. So great question. I think I really wanted to work at a company that allowed me to leverage my engineering degree. And at the time, there were many, but um, one stood out to me. Uh, GE, General Electric. At the time, it was, I always say this because things have shifted so much, but it was the second largest company in the world by market cap behind ExxonMobil. And had a tremendous leadership program for, you know, for engineers. And so I had the opportunity to work at GE and I took it. I did the engineering Edison development program at GE and then worked in different places doing different things. It's a rotational program. I really enjoyed that. And then um, I did a few other things after that, like sales and engineering. But we, we can talk more about that if that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, what was what is interesting there is, you know, GE was definitely the place to be. And it sort of spawned general managers across mm -hmm. business. Uh, there are a couple of companies of sort of our era, if you will, big tech companies that were just, if you were there and you were in a rotation program, you were either going to be very successful there or you were going to leave and go do something amazing someplace else. And GE certainly had that reputation at the time mm -hmm. as, as the, yeah. the launch pad. When you were there though, you ended up leaving GE and I think went right back to business school from GE, right? I did. So with GE, I had an interesting path, which led me to, to make the decision to go to business school. So like I mentioned, I started on the engineering leadership program. And while I didn't, while I was on the leadership program, I did a rotation that exposed me to the sales side of the house. And so I ended up meeting the sales VP and we, we got to talking. And again, GE was one of those great companies where, you know, it encouraged you to do things that you're passionate about. And, you know, it kind of just like provided opportunity for youngsters to do really interesting things. And so I decided to explore that thread in sales, and I did sales engineering. Actually, for GE in South Africa, it was my first taste of South Africa before I, I joined Bain there many years later. So while I did sales engineering, and it was still engineering-focused because it was dealing with technical product, I realized that there were a few things about the business world that I did not understand. And so it felt like an MBA would be very useful uh, to my future career prospects. So when you went to HBS, and we've had a couple of alums on, I had a great experience there doing what I wanted to do there. Um, but I knew what I was going to do when I came out, because um, I was I was one of the, the fortunate ones to be sponsored by Bain when I went to business right, school. Right, right. You came out of HBS, and I don't know that you found your next job at a career fair. In fact, I'm pretty sure that you didn't. Why don't you share with people? <laughs> why don't you share with people what you did on the yeah, back end? Yeah, I shoot all the career fairs and all the people that were like, "Come work for us." I think life is such an interesting journey. But in any case, at the time, I had not adulted in Nigeria, right? And remember, I am from Nigeria. And so, and continue to go back even while I was in the U.S. all this time and South Africa. And when I was leaving business school, my dad was close to retirement and thinking about 
giving back to society. And I was also very much in the mind space of wanting to adults in, in Nigeria, but also giving back in some ways, given all the opportunities that I had. And so he wanted to start a chicken farm. And I was like, this is a really cool way to give back. And he wanted to start it in a community that didn't have a lot of formal employment. And so it was a way of creating formal employment, but also creating a good source of nutrition. So eggs are one of the most uh, nutritious products that are cheap. And so he wanted to start that in the village where he grew up for all the right reasons. And I thought having just come um, fresh off of my MBA, I could do some good there. And in fact, I did a project during my MBA in independent study where a few of my friends and I worked on the farm and, and, and how to make it sustainable. And so after business school, I went back to Nigeria to go work with my dad on the chicken farm and set it up in the hometown where he grew up, which is a fascinating experience. It was great. Now, were you applying a lot of the stuff that you learned in Tom and Lead and all those other sort of MBA classes to a chicken farm yes. in West Africa? Like you think you don't use those things and you do <laughs> you use all of them. Tom was, was definitely something that I used. Think about operations management and just how to set up things. But also, I never did finance. I uh, didn't love it, but I had to use all of those things we also learned in finance to make sure that it was a profitable and sustainable business model um, as well. So yeah, and lead, I think you can't run any organization without using some of the things that you learn in lead. So yeah, it's all, and, all very useful. And we had a conversation with Steve Berez on the pod who, um, after business school, went back to his family business. Hmm. And at some point he felt like he had sort of transformed what there was to transform and it was going to stabilize into running the business. How did you decide when it was time to move on past that? Yeah, it's funny how being people are all the same in different bodies, right? Very similar thought to Steve. Yeah. I joke that I had up, up until that time worked with sort of, you know, engineering products where you, you make something and it does what you tell it to do when you tell it to do it. <laughs> Uh, I was now working with biological systems that do whatever they want. So like you could tell the chickens go faster, but they they have their own internal thoughts. <laughs> Did you just refer so, to chickens as biological systems? I think so. <laughs> Always an engineer. And so I literally thought of those terms and was like, okay, I, you know, I can do as much as I can to make the system optimal, but it's going to run on its own internal clock. And so I did just that. I kind of looked and said, here's a change that I could make. And I implemented those changes, but then I thought, okay, I'm probably not going to be making the best use of my skills and abilities if I continue to stay on with the business. And at the time, it just so happened that I was also getting married, and I don't think my husband wanted to move to the little hometown where I was running my, my little chicken farm business. And so it also was another factor in the decision-making process. So, Onyinye, I want to pick up the story of how you got introduced to Bain. So, yeah. it's about 2013, and you ended up joining Bain in South Africa. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about? I don't know where we were recruiting at the time, but that was about the time I took my role. We were not yeah. running uh, career fairs in rural villages, uh, no? looking for people with, <laughs> with your background. I could have sworn I saw a sign with Bain Red, like, just next to the farm. <laughs> so, talk a little bit about your path into Bain. Yeah, you know, a lot of people listening are like, you know, I'm not... I'm, I'm not at a school where I see a lot of Bain or I'm not in an industry where I see a lot of people go to Bain. And they sort of wonder, like, is there a path for me? And the answer is yes. But how, how did you find your path into Bain? Yeah, I think there are a couple of, of factors that kind of inform that path. So one was what at business school, I was introduced to consulting. Okay. Large, right? yeah. So this is yeah. like what consultants do, da, 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 da. And I had friends who kind of went into consulting and obviously had friends at business school who came from consulting. That was one. So at least I was aware that it existed. And the second thing was McKinsey had just opened an office in, in Nigeria, actually in Lagos, a few years back. And incidentally, my, my husband um, ended up working there. 
So I, I also knew from very close proximity what it meant to be in, in consulting and work company. But then, so when I was making the decision, there's like, what did I want to do, right? And so at the time, I, was, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I thought consulting would be a great way of figuring out what to do, um, being in that position of saying, I'm not quite entirely sure what I wanted to do. So, you know, that's for those of you who are like, I'm indecisive. Yay, come to consulting, it's for you. Oh, gosh. Um, I certainly did that. Recruiters um, everywhere, <laughs> recruiters everywhere just got really frustrated with you. <laughs> I know, but it's, it's the truth, folks, it's the truth. But then, so how did I then go to, to Bain in South Africa? So I didn't want to work with my husband just being, keeping it real. And so th- there was like, I wasn't going to be at McKinsey in Nigeria. And so the, the other options at the time on the continent were Bain and BCG in South Africa. And because of my network of friends, I knew that, that they were recruiting in South Africa. And so that was kind of my, my decision-making process. So you obviously had a lot of success joining Bain and success since joining what did you end up focusing on? What what would you say are the areas of expertise and the practice areas where you spend a lot of your time today? First, I'm going to, to just go back to what you said, had a lot of success joining Bain. I think for folks, like, Bain's a hard job. I think that when you see someone who makes it a partner, you're like, you've had a lot of success. True, but also it comes with all the trials and tribulations of working and consulting. So I think it's a great place to kind of grow yourself and be in a challenging environment. I had all of those things. And yes, I made it a partner, thankfully. But just for those listening, if you're kind of going through the process or thinking about you have to be a certain way to get into consulting and do well, you don't. Like we all go through it and and we get better along the way. 100%. I spent a lot of time doing projects in Bain, which we call transformation projects, but also working on projects that are operating model projects, which are about really driving the change through the way that we structure our organization through the ways of working in the organization. So that is where I spend a lot of my time. I've done it across many different industries. Increasingly, I focus in consumer products and also nonprofit spaces. So you used a lot of terms there in the description that as somebody at Bain, I know what they mean and I know the types of work that you're talking about, but you threw out transformation and operating model in particular. Can you bring those to life for people that are listening, maybe with a client example or some work that you've been doing? I'll talk about a recent client that I worked with last year, which was the beginning of a transformation program. And this client had experienced quite significant growth in the consumer product space, which is boosted, funny enough, by COVID. And they were on the cusp of trying to drive additional growth over the next 10 years. And typical transformation journeys are how do we transform the organization in the face of change over the next X years. In their case, the, the time frame was 10 years. And they wanted to do it, yes, by driving top-line growth, but also through changing the way that we work. And so the transformation element of it, there is a strategic element to say, well, how do we think about changing or shifts in our portfolio to drive the revenue that we're targeting? But then the, the question was like, what do we need to change in our operating model being the way that we work, the way that our people show up to work every day, the systems that we use to get work done, the processes that we use to get work done to deliver on the outcomes that we desire. And so I'll talk about a specific element of it because there, there are lots of components to it. But the one element that uh, was quite salient was using automation to drive differences in the way that we work. 
And I think unless you've been sleeping for the past kind of two months, the world has been overtaken by talk of automation and, and chat GPT, right? And so perhaps it's actually more, it's more tangible to folks now, but we were thinking a lot about how do you leverage the benefits of automation to drive efficiency and effectiveness in the workforce? And so we looked at all the processes by which they get work done against a consumer products company. So it ranged from how they think about procurement because they need inputs to make things to how they think about manufacturing, to how they think about sales, to how they think about marketing. So we basically broke down all of the work they do into different processes. And we said, how can you think about leveraging automation in each of those processes to help you be more efficient and to help you be more effective in delivering your work? As an example, because people are like, well, how do you do that? As an example, let's say, I mean, Keith, you're a head of recruiting or Bain. Like if you're looking for candidates, you could ask chat GPT or some version of AI, you know, where are the best places to recruit for, for consulting, right? And you could do that by leveraging search firms before, and now you can ask AI and it will give you a lot of information that can help you get to an answer faster. You still need human cognition and creativity and decision-making to use that information, but it can help you in the work that you're doing. So that's a very long example, but hopefully help to bring that to life a little bit. What is interesting about what you described is, to me, it's just the next iteration of the journey we've been on. There was a time as an AC, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, the first month of a project was building a fact base and getting the data. Yeah. And then even 10 <laughs> years ago, when I, when I sort of formally took on my recruiting role and left the client side of the business, clients would oftentimes give you a memory stick. Now it's just in the cloud. They give you a memory stick yeah. with all the data we would spend a month <laughs> gathering. Right. And and what you're suggesting now is it's just further acceleration down what I usually think of as like the early stages of a project. You know, where should I recruit? Yeah. I could do a lot of research. A hundred percent. Or I could just have a bot do it for me and get to the really yeah. meaty stuff, yeah. which is exciting, terrifying, and you know, depending on your perspective, uh, really scary. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's a it's the natural evolution of things that we've been on for a long time. It is, but I think, and I've said to you, Keith, like I, when I think about the work that I do, it's really about trying to keep people at the center of the workforce still, even though there is automation that's coming and will change the, the way that we work, but there are real benefits to it as well that I see. So I think on the one hand, we will need to get better at using AI and it can make us more efficient and more effective because it gives us more information and, and helps us like get rid of the busy work, right? So yes, there's a lot of stuff that we do that we don't need to do anymore with AI, which is fantastic. We can do the higher level thinking. Uh, what it also means is that we can we have more capacity. And one thing that excites me about that is we choose how we use that capacity. I think on the one hand, you can use that capacity to do more work. On the other hand, you can use that capacity to be more human, right? We've become a culture globally of people that work and work and work. And I think that certainly this generation is teaching us that that's probably not the best thing for all of us. And I think automation gives us a wonderful opportunity to rethink that. With the additional capacity, we can give more time back to, to us to, to do the human things, right? To raise families and to build societies and communities. So I do think that's a really exciting opportunity ahead that I'm certainly helping my clients think through as well. Onyinye, I want to talk about your move from South Africa to Boston. A couple yeah. of years ago, and I think this is about the time we first met on Zoom or on the phone, uh, you moved to Boston. Can you talk a little bit about the motivation to make such a, a what seems like a big change? Absolutely. One is just like, I think I told you right at the beginning, I moved around so much as a kid. I kind of get bored and <laughs> being in the same place for too long. So I was kind of ready for a move. I was itching for something. I was an SA for about eight years, which for me was a really long time. The second thing was I just had kids at the time. So I have two and a half year old twins. 
And the time I was doing a lot of travel for work uh, and working with the various clients that I had. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice to actually be part of a, a bigger office where I didn't have to do as much travel, but still I could work on all the things that I loved. And third, my sister lived in Boston and she has three little kids. And I thought it would be great for the cousins to spend a lot of time together. So that was kind of the impetus for the move. And we moved here in the latter half of 2021. Cool. And what was your experience? You mentioned that you traveled a lot. You know, a lot of people listening are interested in, in international experiences, which yeah. you know, again, during the pandemic was a little bit of a different, a different animal. <laughs> but what was your experience when you were traveling? Were you traveling around the continent? Were you traveling, you know, beyond the continent? Talk, talk a little bit about that for folks. Yeah. So um, working out of the Joburg office in South Africa, we covered a lot of work um, for across the continent. So I did spend a lot of time traveling to different countries on the continent. We worked with multinationals that had you know, divisions in multiple different countries. So it was really exciting to actually look at the different operations. And, and people say Africa, you know, 54 countries, it gets lost in Africa, right? But each kind of going to each different country, you're seeing the culture, you're seeing how folks work, you're solving problems in those countries with different cultures, but for the same company, which is really exciting. So I didn't do much travel outside the continent for work, but you know, Bain, we're always traveling for other things uh, to meet ourselves in, in different parts of the globe. So that was fun too. Right. Now, one of the things that's always been important to me at Bain and a lot of people at Bain is just the communities that they're a part of. And when you moved to Boston, you mentioned you had family there, which is ironic given that earlier in our conversation, you said you moved someplace where your sisters, I know. You, where, you where your older, sisters right? weren't. Yeah. You, you get older and you actually, ah, you know what, maybe I like do want I like my family. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I also know that you're involved in, in two other diversity and affinity group communities yeah. in Boston. Let's talk a little bit about that and, and your connection and the work that you're doing with them. So having kids is, has made me very choiceful about how I spend my time. I do lots of pain. But now I, I spend time with two affinity groups in Boston that mean a lot to me. One is Babs, which is our Black at Bain community. Coming up in Bain when I did, there were, I don't think I knew of a Black partner at Bain at that time, Keith. Did you know of one back in 2013? I didn't know. Well, it was just just me and maybe one or two others. I think Rob. And, and I hadn't and, met you, right? Yeah, so. I know. <laughs> There was that. There's, do they exist? And the second is, do you know them? The answer was yes to both. Uh, and, and now there are a lot more of us, which is great. There, but, yeah, which is which is great. But coming up, I was like, I didn't see a yeah. lot of folks that looked like me, right? right. And so right. Uh, and I know that a lot of my friends who were, you know, Black at Bain left at some point because, because they didn't have someone to support and, and so on and so forth. And so I do think it's important to spend time there. And I do spend a lot of time specifically the folks in the Boston office, kind of just engaging them and and just like, you know, helping them along their path. And then the second place where I spend my time is called DAB, which is a lesser known affinity group at, at Bain. It's called Diverse Abilities at Bain. So I have a girl and a boy. My twins are girl and boy twins. And my daughter is neurodivergent. Uh, she is autistic. And my son is neurotypical. I say wonderfully neurodivergent and wonderfully neurotypical because they really are wonderful. It's amazing. But it's lovely to see how they both process the world differently. And that's made me just much more aware of how we can make spaces better for folks who are neurodivergent. And I don't think that I had an appreciation for this before I had my, my daughter. 
it's made it more important for me to be more mindful of others who might be like her, but also have other diverse abilities. And that's the, the one side of things. And the other side of things is being a parent of a child who, you know, has um, diverse abilities. It's also, it's also a different space. And so creating space for folks to have that conversation at Bain. You know, how do you manage this and, and providing support for parents who might be going through certain things? And we don't talk about it very often. So just even normalizing the conversation has been really important. Yeah, so that, those are the two things I spend uh, my time on in vain outside of just like normal work, which are really important to me. Yeah, and, and DAB is one of our newest uh, diversity infinity yeah. groups. And by the time this airs, there'll probably be one more announced, which I'm excited about as well. But you know what you said is really important, I think. And I want to highlight that because we had Andy Dunn on the podcast, who Andy was mm. uh, an alum and the founder of Bonobos, and he had just written a book on his struggles with mental health um, mm. and being undiagnosed during several big chapters in his career, including his time at Bain. And one of, the, one of the things that he said was, we just don't talk about it. Yeah. yeah. It's just not yeah. so you struggle sort of silently and you don't realize that yeah. there's an entire community that's not talking about it with each other when they really could be their best support. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even with my teams, I share, you know, and I'm very, I'm, I'm happy to share, I share this openly because I do think Many times I share and folks go, yeah, I know someone or yeah, I, and it's like, but folks don't feel comfortable bringing it up. And yet it's a part of many of our lives. And so I do think that we do all of ourselves um, a huge service when we normalize and have conversations and, and make the spaces better for, for all of us. That's really great. And, and I, I appreciate you sharing that here for people that are listening and, and might be hesitant to speak up or, mm-hmm. or to share their story. Oyinye, as we wrap up, I did want to ask you, one other question, as you look forward over the next couple of years of your career and your life, we're, we're, we're whole people, as you mentioned to uh, earlier in, the, in yeah. the discussion, what gets you excited about the next two or three years? What are you looking forward to? In life, wow. Life these days is like, there's just so much color to it. I think on, let me start with the personal level, I'll come to work. On a personal level, I think continuing to grow and learn more about my kids and like the, the journey that they're on, I think as many parents will attest to, Kids just change your life in a really special way. And I think one, learning how to be a better parent, but also learning how to be a better, I say that I mom and bane, be a better mommer and baner at the same time. That's something that I'm getting better at, but you know, looking forward to getting even better over the next two, three years. I'd say on the work front, I do think, and again, maybe it's just top of mind, but the work that I'm doing in terms of trying to help companies transition into a space where automation is front and center in the way that we do work is really exciting. I think that at Bain, because of the kind of work that we do, we help folks define how to be in when new technology comes and, and presents itself in a way that we're like, well, how do we take advantage of this, right? I mean, CEOs these days have to think about like technology trends, regulations, consumer, da, da, da. And like we as consultants get to say, hey, here's how you think about it. And I love that I get to say to, to the clients that I work with, and here's how you think about it and keep the human at the center of the workforce. And so I'm excited about helping companies define that in a way that also remains humane and centered. I think, like I mentioned before, you can choose what to do with your excess capacity. <laughs> right. You can, you can keep working more and like, you know, drain the human, or you can say, what a gift. And, you know, and let's, let's actually use this very thoughtfully. And that's what I'm excited about. Really awesome. I want to thank you again for coming on today. Uh, it was really great hearing your story and, and what you've been up to at Bain. We were long overdue to catch up. So I appreciate <laughs> you. I appreciate you making the time to join us today. No, absolutely. Thank you so much for asking me. And yes, yeah, always great to talk to you, Keith. <laughs>